Welcome to Business Owners Radio. Business Owners Radio, where established business owners get the latest insights, strategies, and practices to grow a sustainably profitable business. And now, taking care of business, your hosts, Craig Moen and Shai Gilad. Welcome to Business Owners Radio, Episode 31. Today's show, we'll be talking with John Johnson and Mike Gluck, co-authors of the new book, Every Data. John and Mike will be sharing with us the importance of big data and little data in our business decisions. They'll also be giving us clear and entertaining examples around validating the data we have and formulating the best decisions from it. Good morning, Shai. Good morning, Craig. Hey, I'm really excited about getting some listener feedback, and we've got a feedback form. Very short, and we'd love it if everybody could go to our website, take the short feedback form, and put in some feedback on what you think about the show, and also some input for future shows. And in exchange, we're going to do a drawing with an Amazon gift card, and we'll be announcing that on the show, and then really appreciate all of the feedback. It really helps us design and improve the show going forward. And Shai, remember the movie Moneyball? Oh yeah, I love that film. It was great. It was just a fun movie, but it really drew out some fascinating things regarding utilizing data in a very powerful way that others had not thought of. It really found gold in that data of finding great minor players in the minor leagues to make the Oakland A's one of the top teams for a while. Sure, and you know, of course, Boston went on to take that same formula and win a championship. And a lot of major sports teams use data like that now to evaluate all kinds of things about players. You know, they're searching for those correlations that really matter and trying to weed out all of the noise that doesn't. You know, you're trying to figure out what are the things I really need? What are the numbers I need to focus on? And what are the things I need to eliminate to make sure that I'm really getting the data I need to make good business decisions? And, you know, it turns out there's a lot of tricks in understanding data. But the great news is, is that there's a lot of people that have been working on this to understand the biases of how we view data, how we're being marketed to, how we make choices, and really provide some guidelines that can help just about anybody understand data better. Understanding that data and really questioning the quality of the data. And I'm really excited about our guests today. Our guests are John Johnson and Mike Luck. John and Mike are co-authors of their new book, Every Data, The Misinformation Hidden in Little Data You Consume Every Day. John Johnson has a Ph.D. in econometrics from MIT and is CEO and co-founder of Edgeworth Economics. His company is featured on major media networks, and he serves as an expert witness and consultant on cases involving the use and interpretation of data. Mike Gluck is an award-winning writer and marketeer, as well as president of Gluckworks, a copywriting and marketing firm. Good morning, John and Mike. Welcome to Business Owners Radio. Good morning. Great to be here. Morning. Thank you. It's great to have you both on the show today. And have to ask, how did the two of you come together to create this book? Uh, well, I guess I'll start. Um, Mike and I actually went to high school together uh, in Amherst, New York, about 25 years ago now. And I had this idea for the book 
I knew Mike was a professional writer. I'm an economist by training, and I always joke, I write well for an economist, but that doesn't mean I write well. And so, you know, I thought about it, and I called him up and sort of said, hey, I have this idea. What do you think? And that was kind of where it started. Mike, what happened next? <laughs> lots and lots of Facebook messages back and forth and lots of Starbucks as well. You know, we would talk a couple times a week. John would give me his lesson on economics and sampling and correlation, go back and forth. We collected probably thousands of examples, and then we set off to find a publisher for the book. John, what was your initial inspiration for the idea behind the book? Well, in my career, uh, and I'm an entrepreneur, I own an economic consulting firm that focuses on data analysis. My background, I have a PhD in a field called econometrics, which basically is the fancy term for someone who's a statistician and an economist. And so in my day job, before I started this, I testify as an expert witness where I have to explain data to judges, to juries, to lawyers. And you know, over the last 15 years doing that, I would notice a lot of different things about what were sort of common mistakes people make, what were some of the difficulty people had when they would understand or try to understand numbers and data. And so this has got me thinking about how could I make a slightly broader difference in terms of really advancing what we've kind of dubbed as statistical literacy. How could you make numbers and data more fun for people and really teach people how to not get taken advantage by statistics? And so that was kind of where it came from. And then talking to Mike, starting to really think about what we could do, starting to look at all the different examples that are out there, it sort of just took on a life of its own. And here we are about two and a half years, three years later, and now we have this book. John and Mike, the title of the book is very fascinating, Every Data, the Misinformation Hidden in the Little Data You Consume Every Day. Business owners and CEOs of companies make major buying decisions for their businesses that have long-term effects. What role does data play, or perhaps should play, in buying or investing process in businesses? I think it should be a part of almost every decision at this point in time. I mean, one of the things we talk about a little bit in the book is that over the last two years, 90% of the world's data has been created. Think about what that means. That literally means that every single person, business person, the average American, and although we talk about why averages lie sometimes, consumes 34 gigabytes of data a day. 34 gigabytes is the equivalent of 34 pickup trucks filled to the brim with data. It's a lot of information. If you're a business owner and you're making decisions in a competitive world, if you're willing to engage with data and understand it, it is a huge advantage. We are rapidly getting to the point that if you choose to ignore it, it's not just a huge advantage, it's going to be an incredible detriment to you. So that doesn't mean every CEO, every business owner has got to be an expert in statistics, running their own models, running their own data analytics. But it does mean heightening the level of awareness in terms of what data is useful how to ask questions with data, and how to orient your business decisions in a way that you can actually measure results. Yeah, it feels like it's one of those situations of you don't know what you don't know, and that can really get you into trouble. And furthermore, there's this abundance of data. I mean, it's staggering thinking about that example you gave of the dump trucks, how much we're exposed <laughs> to every day. And for the business owner, how do you make choices about filtering and understanding what numbers are really important to you and what to focus on? Well, I think one of the things we try to help people with is, you know, a good starting point, first of all, I, I call it step one is awareness, right? 
we're not always aware of the data we have, of the data that's around us, of even what constitutes data. You know, I can look at a picture, and a picture can be giving me useful information about my business. In fact, last week I gave a keynote address at the Self-Storage World Expo in Las Vegas, and one of the things we talked about was when self-storage managers sort of walk around their properties every day to look at the different garages and facilities and sort of observe security patterns or things. That's a form of data, just as much as your monthly financials or your weekly financials are. So I think a first thing is just being aware that there is lots of information around the world and around you that you can use. Now, the problem is data doesn't come ready to analyze for the purpose that you probably want it to. You know, People keep accounting databases, but that's often to facilitate billing and invoicing, not necessarily to facilitate all the profit and loss type analyses you might want to do. So the second part, I think, for a business owner is to think to themselves, okay, what is it that I'm trying to measure? What is it that I want to understand? And what is the question I want to answer? And if you do that, then you can think about, all right, what data might be useful or not so useful to answer that question. But not all of us have an advanced education in economics and analytics as you do. So where, how, So, what about for the business owner that knows the question but just isn't really sure exactly what he or she needs to get the answer? Well, one of the things that I, we try to explain is that, in fact, I don't think it's the advanced analytics that makes the difference. I think it's actually your knowledge of your business and your knowledge of what you think matters. A lot of what we learned in sort of looking at the book and writing the book was about the fact that when people trust their intuition in terms of the questions they're trying to answer, they actually can get pretty far. Now, again, I'm not talking about running cross-price derivatives you know, in the background. I'm not talking about running really sophisticated modeling. I'm just saying you have a business question you're trying to answer stepping back and say, okay, if we wanted to do a critical assessment of whatever the issue is, as a business owner, you will know your business. You will know what you think matters or what you think doesn't matter. And that is something you can do with very limited data skills, right? That's something you can do just because you can think about a question and you can be a good thinker. And so, so much of then what we try to do on our book is say, okay, let's take a couple of these key concepts and help demystify them for the reader so that you're not so scared of it and you're not uncomfortable. And so when you see a phrase like averages or you see something like, oh, here's a data point that doesn't fit. Oh, that's called an outlier. I should study that. We talk about those types of things to just give people that sort of basic foundation in a completely intuitive way to help them move forward with that decision making. That's a great point. We were just looking at an article this morning that it explored the difference between data literacy and data fluency, right? So I don't have a PhD in econometrics, but I feel that after talking to John and learning this and writing the book, I'm now data literate. That doesn't mean I'm data fluent. That doesn't mean I can go and perform regression analyses, but I know to ask questions about averages, to ask questions about the sample size, to know that there may be issues with the information that's out there, and then to get some help taking the next steps. Guys, I like the way you've formatted the book and tremendous amount of background material and stories really drive it home. Author Malcolm Gladwell talks about outliers having a profound effect on career success. In your book, you talk about outliers when it comes to data. What should a business leader be aware of here? That's an interesting question. I thought about a lot, actually, from my own personal experience as an entrepreneur. You know, we do sort of caution about anecdotes. The plural of anecdote is not data. But I have been amazed, so I've found that you know, 
when you are an entrepreneur, you know, you are taking risks, you are putting yourself out there. You know, my story as an entrepreneur is that I worked at a very large, very prominent economic consulting firm, was having a very good career, a better than good career by their standards. But I continually felt like I was treated like I was just another expert. And I was kind of like the average. And I would be told frequently, well, you're really young. If you just wait, if you just be patient, if you just wait a little bit longer, eventually, you know, you'll just get your turn. And I kind of just bristled at that entire approach, you know, because I didn't believe I was like everyone else. I didn't believe I was average. In fact, I thought I was an outlier. I also had a sense of vision for how I wanted to approach the marketplace in my chosen career. And so I took the chance and went out on my own. That was seven years ago, and we had six employees then, and we have 80 now. So we've had some success doing this. But the interesting thing is I've interacted with entrepreneurs, who actually has been one of the groups that have reacted to the book as enthusiastically as anyone I've spoken to, (laughs) because this notion that in this world of numbers, in this world of sort of ways that people are trying to categorize and put people into boxes – You can use the statistics to see, well, when are things performing differently? When is it that a certain characteristic, a certain trait, a certain practice is actually leading to returns or results? So, you know, I'm kind of a big fan of this outlier notion. In the book, of course, we're talking about in the context of just be aware, understand that sometimes outliers are meaningful data points. Sometimes they don't belong at all. You know, and in working with business owners on this very topic, I always think about it from a marketing perspective as, you know, you can use your powers for good or you can use them for evil. So once you have an understanding (laughs) of this, it really helps filter a lot of the BS that's coming at you, right? And your book does such a great job of teaching business owners and, of course, anyone how to ask the right questions about anything they're looking at and not just not just accepting data that's being presented to them, especially by a media source at face value, right? So tell me about this from an ethical standpoint. Can you give me an example of a few things business owners should know that could help them market their products and services better? You know, one thing that sort of comes to mind right away is that, you know, when you are dealing with clients, and no matter what type of business you're in, I mean, I'm obviously in a consulting business, but a service industry, but any industry is essentially a service industry. You have to set realistic expectations with your clients of how you're going to perform and what your product, what your service is going to deliver. Using numbers in a way that are honest and straightforward sets the expectations in the right way. Using numbers in a way that are dishonest or that overlook key parts actually is only going to lead to more trouble down the road for you as a business owner, at least in my opinion. So there's an ethical responsibility, of course, and I take that very seriously, that numbers can be abused, but it goes a little bit deeper than I mean, as an economist, I think to myself, there's kind of this uh, market imperfection or market failure in the world when it comes to how statistics are used. And if we can have people more aware, we can correct that market failure, and that should be more efficient for everyone. It's a little bit theoretical, but that's the way I think about it. Yeah, I mean, I come from a, from working in advertising agencies. I've done some work for newspapers as well. And, the, you know, especially in the advertising world, you're very careful not to cross those ethical lines, but there's absolutely cherry picking and selecting the right message for your client. We explored a little bit of that in the book with some different messages that different hospitals put out there, each of them sort of implying that they were the best in one way or another, but in a way that makes it difficult for consumers to really make the right decision. And that we see that in the business world as well, right? If you're a business person, you're trying to buy a computer, network, what have you from another company, you really need to look at not only what are they 
telling you and what are they showing you, but what are they not telling you? What are they not showing you? What information are they cherry picking? Where did their data come from? If you're looking at a case study or testimonials, you know, that might be just a sample set of one or two or a few. And so you really need to ask those questions to find out, okay, is this data that they're sharing with me representative of the experience that all of their customers have with this product or service they're trying to sell me? Or is it an outlier? That's a great point. And having the understanding and also making that decision as John really points out, like you're operating an ethical business in the world, and you don't want to misrepresent your data, and you want to portray it in a way that makes it easier for the customer to make a choice. So I think it starts there, because the thing that will happen is over time, as this correction takes place ever slowly, and people understand more and more how to analyze data, they're going to be able to see through the crap a little better, right? So I think like oh. you're, you portraying yourself in an honest light, and by the way, taking this knowledge from your book that any business owner can take and analyze their competitors and look at how they're portraying data, that information yep. can be really powerful too, especially if they're being less than ethical. I think my favorite clients are the ones that are well-informed. Okay. Again, I get very frustrated when I go and pitch a new matter, for example, and the basis for the decision is how old the expert is, because I'm always the youngest expert in the room in the cases I testify in by a lot, right? I'm in a gray-haired profession with people with a lot of leather patches and a lot of degrees, okay? <laughs> so what I need is I need the audience and the people who I'm telling our work to to understand that when they hire my firm, they're going to get thoughtful research. They're going to get our attention to detail. They're going to get our objectivity. And they're going to get results because we focus so much on how we explain the work we do. Now, that's my particular business. For me, the best potential clients are the ones that can see the difference. And nothing frustrates me more when I have one who's like, well, you guys are great, but we're going to go with the old gray-haired person because that's safer for us. Well, that whole market starts to change. I mean, we view ourselves as a real market disruptor in our space, you know. And so for us, having grown so much in seven years and sort of taken an industry that was very, very set in its ways and did things a certain way and sort of become a true incubator in our space, I really think the data and this influence of being able to think critically, both from educating your clients and then how you yourself promote think about your business and make those decisions, that is really the best thing that's possible. I think there's a line in the book we talk about Cy Sims, who had this quote, you know, an educated consumer is our best customer. It's the way I feel about my business, and I think that's really, hopefully your listeners will feel that way, because that is really, if you're doing good work, you want to be able to stand out. Data is just another way to distinguish yourself. Yeah, and you know, we're in this age, too, where data needs to be taken with a grain of salt, even beyond the analytics, just even trusting some of the most basic things that you hold to be true, because, you know, the publications, even the ones that are trying to be extremely honest and put clean data into the world, they're struggling. You know, I'm thinking specifically about the Open Science Framework's reproducibility project and some of the data that came out last summer, and it's really staggering and a little depressing. <laughs> and psychology is a field struggling this. I mean, they looked at about 97% of the 100 studies that they looked at originally reported statistically significant results, but just 36% of the replications did. So what are the implications yeah. of that, John? Well, it's huge. I mean, there's a big debate going on amongst academics, and particularly in statistics, about something called p-hacking, which fancy term for, you know, whenever we look at statistical effects, we're trying to determine whether what we're observing is due to chance or whether it's 
sort of an actual statistical result. And so what happens in science, or at least the way the scientific method should work, is you should be able to take your data and take your particular experiment and replicate it and get the same results. In a laboratory science, that makes a lot of sense because you can think about, wow, you know, I'm in a lab, I can control how much of this chemical do I combine with this chemical at what temperature, you know, you can have conditions that you can replicate very specifically. Now turn to the world of social science research, psychology, economics, all of the other things that we actually care about, it actually is really hard because we have a very difficult time replicating things. But for the most part, we don't get to run experiments in the real world. Now, that's not entirely true because there is a whole field of economics where they run experiments in labs and also run some experiments in the real world. But put that to the side for a second. The majority of the studies that people run are, oh, I found this interesting data on this group of people and I looked for an effect and I you know, modeled it and this is what I got. So the notion that it's hard to replicate these things is a function of, well, does it deal with how people are finding results? Is it that inability to exactly control for the different things? Um, or is it just sloppy work, which is also a big deal? I mean, I was an academic many, many, many years ago. Um, I was way too social to be an academic, I found. But (laughs) the pressure to publish is tremendous. And I remember somebody saying to me once, you know, there's the people who get a reputation where their statistical significance of their results is always really high. And then there's the people that always have those marginal results. And you kind of, if you're really objective science, you want to be the one who's not known for somehow always finding a way to get these really significant results. That's usually a sign, maybe it's the way you're doing your work. (laughs) So, I think that given the pressure to publish, given all these things, it's not surprising, but it is depressing. The nice thing about initiatives like the one you're describing, though, is people are starting to look more carefully, partly because now we have incredible computing power. We have the ability to download data sets in seconds. We have journals that are making the underlying programs and data available to researchers. So the ability to have to replicate, to be able to see, is hugely important. Yeah, I, this really speaks to cherry picking too. What you were talking about uh, in, in, the, in the book, you know, Mike, can you give us a couple examples of cherry picking as it relates to the general public and what we see in business? You know what? There was a great one we talked about in the book with the four out of five doctors recommending Gerber baby food, and you know they had some disclaimers on it. But you know, you hear that message on a TV commercial or whatnot, and you think, okay four out of five doctors must recommend Gerber. But when you take a closer look at it, that's not the case at all. It was four out of five doctors who recommended baby food, who recommended a specific brand, recommended Gerber. (laughs) Yeah. So a little bit different when you go inside the data a little bit, and then it becomes completely non-relevant to the baby food at hand, so to speak. So Exactly. But it's so interesting how it plays on our bias, right? We like that information that's easy to grab, easy to understand in a bite-sized chunk. It reduces our thinking, and it allows us to get to the wrong answer quicker. I mean, one of the things I know we've actually been so concerned about with our book is, you know, people hear, oh, you wrote a statistics book. That's great. Oh, you have a PhD in econometrics. I can't wait to read your book. You know, we had a book party this weekend, and (laughs) several of the people came up to me and said, you know, when your wife invited me to the party, I was going to just buy the book to just kind of look at it briefly so I could be polite. But then I started to read it. I actually really liked it. You know, but, you know, people (laughs) do, people really do want sound bites. Like, that's partly the way they think. That's sort of the time. And as you just continue to bombard people with more and more information, 
the sound bites become worse and worse. So we have tons of interesting things in our book with headlines. You know, if your commute lasts more than 45 minutes, you're more likely to get divorced. If you live close to a Starbucks, your house value is higher. And we have to mention people that eat grilled cheese have better sex and are better people overall. <laughs> I oh, saw that chapter. You know, right. Everybody I, will look at those headlines. Oh, let me click through. Oh, that's neat. But none of them actually, none of the underlying stories, when you get to the heart of it, actually reflected anything in those headlines at all. And so it's a dilemma. And so when we come back to that first premise, awareness, just being aware of what you're reading, a little bit of discipline that way actually takes you very far towards being a better consumer of these types of information and all of these constant bombardment of headlines. I kind of say, if it sounds too good to be true, it usually is. And you got to look at the details. You don't have to go be a statistician, but you do have to look a little deeper. Yeah. And I think understanding that just how flawed we are in our basic wiring, that we're designed to look for causation. I mean, we love patterns. We seek patterns. We're still reptilian in a lot of ways in our brains. <laughs> and I think just understanding that, like, hey, this is how we all think, and I'm as susceptible as anyone else. You know, I look at Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, and Nobel Prize winner in this kind of research in behavioral economics. And, you know, they ask him about, hey, now that you're so aware of your bias, you know, after 40 years of research and a Nobel Prize how does that affect your ability to detect bias in yourself? And he's like, I'm just more aware of it now, but I'm no better than anybody else. I'm just as susceptible to jumping to conclusions as anyone else. I've just learned to construct systems to help protect my thinking. No, that's a great point. And like John said, it's just about being more aware and asking questions and even studies that are based on great research. You know, there was something we read or we heard on NPR where there was a study about the risk of cancer if you drink soda. And, you know, they gave a stat that you were 18% more likely. Well, you know, you see those numbers in even in the New York Times or NPR, wherever you see it, and you take that as fact. But what I think experts like John understand, but most people don't, is that when you see a number like that, it's often based on research that's based on probability. There are confidence intervals involved. There's statistical significance involved, as John was saying. So, the risk might be 18%, but more accurately, you might say, okay, there's a 95% probability that the risk is somewhere between 9% and 28%. And so you don't know that, though, just from reading the newspaper or reading magazines or listening to NPR, even if it is a well-respected media outlet. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of drives and underlying factors that are driving the distortion of data and the creation and interpretation of it all the time. And this kind of shows up in businesses and departments that are actually having a hard time forecasting with any reasonable accuracy. There's so many biases pulling in and so many pulls in different direction. Any suggestions you could have that would drive them to maybe do forecasting a little differently or ask the right questions? In my business, I often get access to data sets from companies because I'm often analyzing them. I had a case where I had the price of every chocolate candy bar sold in the U.S. for a 10-year period. And I had to analyze the pricing and figure out what was going on and why certain things were happening. You know, And one of the first things I tell people when they deal with forecasting is, is to remember forecasting only works to the extent the past actually represents the future. Right. So one big caveat before you start is if you're modeling a new phenomenon, if you're modeling something where you expect there to be a great deal of uncertainty, let's remember when you're forecasting that it's probably 
more likely that what you're getting is some range, some set of probabilities, and less an exact outcome. In other words, I should be skeptical that I can forecast with such perfection, even if I'm the best forecaster in the world, a number. I know next month we should expect sales of 20.3 widgets in our factory, right? Got to be careful about that. You're probably dealing with ranges, first of all. Second big thing I would mention is the forecast can only be as good as the data you put in. And it is always surprising to people when you talk to someone who's a data analyst or a data scientist that a great deal of the amount of time we spend is actually simply cleaning the data. And cleaning meaning are the customer names right? Are the prices correct? Is there any anomalies in the data as a function of miscoding or things like that? You know, we have a bunch of funny examples in the book. The story of the 19,000 pregnant men in Great Britain, um, which sounds ridiculous, but I can't tell you the number of times the analog of that I see in data sets. So, past is not always prologue. You're estimating probably in a range, and the data has to be correct. Those are three pretty good guidelines if you're going to think about forecasting. Yeah, and just, just to add one more on that, I mean, we talked as well about the forecast bias, right? So if you're a manager looking at reports from your employees saying, okay, this is the budget we need for next year, well, okay, look at the past numbers, but also think about what bias might your employees have in giving you a number. If they're giving you a higher number? Is that based on overly optimistic projections just because they want to get a higher budget for their department? You need to look at where those numbers are coming from. This notion that we look at things and we sort of fit them into narratives that we like, again, it comes back to something you said before. I think humans are definitely wired to look for patterns. We want to understand the world around us. That's partly why we so overemphasize our own anecdotal experiences, because it's a way we can make sense of a complicated world. The problem with data, it is in its best sense, it can be objective. In its worst sense, it can just reinforce our own anecdotal experiences if we're not being rigorous or thoughtful about it. Yeah, I think that's such a great summary, really, for the whole book that really nails it. You know, businesses do a lot of surveying to collect a lot of data to see what's being received on the other end and get some feedback. And they're using a lot of averages and a lot of self-reporting. When it comes to surveys for businesses, any thoughts and suggestions? Craig, that's a great question. And so I think you mentioned a few things, right? The averages, the self-selection, the self-reported data, right? So if you, we studied a few of these in the book where people sent surveys out to a broad audience and they got a number of surveys back. Well, did they get back a representative sample? Did they get back just surveys from people who had time that day to answer them? You see that in polling as well. When you're surveying people, are you polling them and surveying them via phone, via email? Are you cutting out people who don't have access to those mediums? So you really need to look at the first thing I would say is who are you sampling and are they truly representative of the full population? Is look, overrepresentation of certain people. Who's most likely to respond to customer surveys? The ones that are really unhappy or the ones that are really happy? So you're kind of implicitly kind of going to get some extremes there. And that's perfectly fine if you know that going in, because I think there could be really valuable information from your most happy and most unhappy customers, right? You can learn a lot from that. But if you start to behave as if 
the extremes are the way you should run your business in general, that could be a problem for you. I actually, when I was at this self-storage conference I told you about last week, I talked about a survey there where they listed the 10 features that potential customers of self-storage facilities were most likely to want, which included sort of drive up gates in certain security systems a whole laundry list of things. But then when they asked them, what are you willing to pay for? Less than half of all the consumers are willing to pay for any of them. Okay. Well, that's very different take on the data based on who is answering and what they actually wanted. So I think being careful about surveys is always critical. There is a whole field of survey science, which is very complicated about how we decide who to interview, who to talk to. But every customer is a customer, right? There is something to be gleaned there. You just have to make sure you figure out what can you do with the information? How far do you push it? Do you really extrapolate it to everybody? Is the experience of the one customer who's really, really upset with you, should that be extrapolated to everyone else? Probably not. Same way, how about the customer who's your biggest fan? Are they having the same experience as everyone else? Probably not. Or what can you learn to make that experience better for everyone else? I think that's the way I think about it. Yeah, and there's a challenge, too, around just self-reporting in general. We're, we're terrible eyewitnesses. We're also terrible barometers of our own behavior. You know, if you think about it, before Starbucks, you have to wonder if someone was simply surveyed in a vacuum and just said, hey, I have a question for you. If I opened a coffee shop and charged you $3 for a coffee, would you buy one? I wonder what percentage of people would have said no because they, they didn't have the context. And even people today that maybe go to Starbucks on a regular basis, if you ask them, why do you like going to Starbucks? Their answer that they say might not actually be the reason that they do it. I think about your discussion of Starbucks and the correlations that were interpreted as causal when in fact they're not. So we're frequently not aware of our own tendencies. Yeah, that, that's a great point, Shine. We, you know, you see that in focus groups as well, whether it's, you know, the, Apple didn't do focus groups. Seinfeld was one of the lowest rated TV pilots, but went on to become a huge success. People don't always know what they want, or to your point, Shine, they don't always know why they want what they want, or they can't express that in a way. Ultimately, I think the way this is all going to play out is people that embrace data and understand it will end up with a big advantage. And the people that don't will be left behind in terms of business and in terms of how they actually can make effective decisions. John, we've talked a lot about the data and studies and data analysis. The sample size and the sample set I noticed in your book was really intriguing. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I think this is actually one of the most striking examples in the book. We talk about the fact that the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster in the 1980s actually was in part occurred because of an error in interpreting data. There were 24 data points available on flights of the Space Shuttle at different temperatures. And the question that the engineers were asking themselves the night before the launch had to do with this part called an O-ring. And I think O-rings have actually become pretty infamous in light of the space shuttle disaster. But the O-ring is what keeps the hot air compressed in a way so that the gas tanks don't explode. That's the short, non-tactical version. So what the engineers were trying to figure out that night was, well, based on past experience, was it safe to fly the space shuttle at 35 degrees? Because that was going to be the coldest space shuttle launch in any of the prior ones by a good 15, 20 degrees. So they looked at some data on all the prior launches and the failures or the instances of sort of distress in O-rings, but they chose to only look at the seven flights where there had been any failures at all. 
And so if you look at the seven flights with any failures, it doesn't look like there's any relationship between temperature and failure. When you actually look at all the data, all 24, you'll see that all those other O-rings where there were no failures were all launches at very high temperatures. So the pattern becomes really clear. The temperature does have a very pronounced relationship with O-ring failure, but they missed it because they looked at a subset of the data. They looked at the wrong sample. So that's a pretty sobering example of how data can lead to a really fatal decision. In that case, failing to ask the correct question. Something John kept saying over and over as we were writing this book, you know, it's not always about the data you have. It's about going back to your question about sampling and and asking people on surveys and such. Are you asking the right question to get the answer you want? You know, are you asking people who go to self-storage units what features they want? Or are you asking them what features are you willing to pay for? As a business owner, knowing what your end goal is will help you craft the question in a way that you can get the data that will help you make that decision. Well, John and Mike, thank you for joining us today. We really enjoyed our time with you. Uh, thank you. Oh, this thank has you. been great, Craig. Shy- yeah, really fun, exciting to talk about our book. Uh, you can tell Mike and I are really passionate about this notion of making people better consumers of data in their everyday life. Our guests today have been John Johnson and Mike Gluck, the authors of an impressive new book titled Every Data. You can learn more about John and Mike as well as find links to their website and take the Every Data Quiz to test your skills on detecting bad data, all on our show notes at businessownersradio.com. And as a reminder, please take a moment to fill out our short feedback form under the green banner button on our website and be automatically entered to win an Amazon gift card once a month. Thank you for joining us on Business Owners Radio. We hope you enjoyed today's show. As always, you can read more about each episode along with links and offers in the show notes on our website, businessownersradio.com. We want to hear your feedback. Please leave comments on this show or suggestions for upcoming episodes. Tell your fellow business owners about the show and, of course, you would love the stars and comments on iTunes. Till next time, keep taking care of business.